Well, I don't know when you last read the story that was put before us tonight. I know Bruce Kitching had never heard of them before. He was hoping that I was going to do Ruth or somebody, but no, sorry, I've already preached on Ruth here before, as well as Rachel. And when Adam phoned me up last Sunday night and told me that there's a theme of Sunday evenings of looking at Old Testament characters, I knew instantly who I was going to do because I'd done a study of these online a few years ago. So our two main characters tonight are going to be Athaliah and Jehoshaphat. The story has the makings of a Hollywood blockbuster, don't you think? I've got Angelina Jolie playing the role of Athaliah. She'd be great. And of course, Julie Andrews is Jehoshaphat. And as hard as it is to believe, our two characters tonight are related. The next slide shows their family line. And clearly there is a lack of creative imagining, imagination in the name of the children. Jehoshaphat had the same father as Hezekiah and was Athaliah's stepdaughter. And it gets all very confusing. With that in mind, let's set the scene together. From 2 Chronicles 22 and 23, down through human history, God had made covenants with humanity. Then with Noah, then with Abraham, and then with Moses. And God also made a covenant with David. And in that covenant with David, God promised three things, that there would always be a land forever, it would be a dynasty without end, and it would be a perpetual kingdom. You can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We also find there that he, uh, there's a prediction of the birth of Solomon as David's successor to the throne, with his role being established to establish David's throne forever. With 300 wives, that would be not been, be an impossibility. And we see this link to Jesus Christ through the genealogies to both Joseph, who had a legal right to the throne, as well as Mary, who had a blood right to the throne. And this book of two chronicles covers the same period in history as one and two kings, but from a spiritual perspective. It tells mainly of Judah, the southern kingdom, after the life of David, and deals mainly with the, the reforming kings, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Johash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And the passage we've got before us is now about the 8th century BC. The nation of Israel became a monarchy, firstly under Saul, then under mighty King David, and then under wise Solomon. Old Testament history shows that this is a particularly violent time. Soon after Solomon dies, the nation of Israel was torn apart. The ten northern tribes formed Israel and departed from worshipping the true God, Yahweh, in favour of worshipping Baal, the Canaanite God, the God of the enemy. Mm. And the two southern tribes, or three southern tribes later, formed the nation of Judah. And they stayed loyal to the house of David, mainly because they had Jerusalem with God's temple and God's priests. And by the time of our story, though, about a hundred years later, the leaders of both Israel and Judah had formed a kind of alliance in the face of common enemies. This included intermarrying, and the result was that sometimes the lines of power were getting a little bit blurred. Baal worship was now starting to infiltrate Judah, just as it had done for Israel. They were in danger of abandoning Yahweh, their God. The god Baal was worshipped in many ancient Middle Eastern communities, particularly by the Canaanites, the ancient enemies of Israel. The Canaanites considered Baal a fertility deity and one of their most important gods in the pantheon. 
Judah was slowly slipping into a mire of moral bankruptcy and religious idolatry. And so to the first of our great characters, Angelina Jolie as Athaliah, I'm sure she would appreciate that. And I wonder, again, how many have actually heard of her before tonight, apart from skipping her as you read through the Bible once a year. She's certainly an intriguing, as well as villainous woman, as Shakespeare must have picked up on her at some point. Most scholars seem to think that she was the daughter of that evil man Ahab, as well as that equally evil woman Jezebel, who I'm sure that you have heard of. And as we will see, she somehow inherited the evil scheming of her wicked parents. It's now about 840 BC. Her husband was Jehoram, and we read about him in the previous chapter, chapter 21. He had forsaken the Lord God and had reigned for eight years. The last verse of 2 Chronicles 21 tells us this about him. This is his memorial. He passed away to no one's regret and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. That's not a very happy epitaph, is it? So his son, Ahaziah, becomes king, and Athaliah, his mum, becomes his main counsellor. He's a bit of a mummy's boy. And this causes him to do much evil in the sight of God. And we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 22 and verses 2 to 3, Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for one year. His mother's name was Athaliah, a granddaughter of Omri, He too followed the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother encouraged him to act wickedly. Maybe it's not always salient to listen to your mother. So an intriguing and persistent were Athaliah's designs that she intentionally sought to give her ideas and philosophies to her son. Athaliah whispered her plans and whims in his ear at every opportunity a scheme whereby she hoped that he and his family would continue to promote Baal worship in Jerusalem and eventually establish Baal worship in God's nation rather than the established Judaism with its covenant with Jehovah. Ahaziah reigned only for one year before he was killed. We read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 22. Through Ahaziah's visit to Joram, God brought about Ahaziah's downfall. When Ahaziah arrived, he went out with Joram to meet Jehu, son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had appointed to destroy the house of Ahab. While Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he found the officials of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's relatives who had been attending Ahaziah, and he killed them. He then went in search of Ahaziah, and his men captured him while he was hiding in Samaria. He was brought to Jehu and put to death. They buried him, for they said, He was a son of Jehoshaphat who sought the Lord with all his heart. So now there was no one in the house of Ahaziah powerful enough to retain the kingdom. As the situation was, another of Joram's sons, one not trained by Athaliah, would succeed to the throne. This was a circumstance which could indeed temporarily pause Athaliah's evil plans. No matter, Athaliah was intent on ruling and seizing power. She becomes queen of Judah in Jerusalem simply by commanding that all of Joram's sons and grandsons are killed. Every one of them. She was intent on killing the rest of the royal dynasty of David and during this time she even had her own sons and grandsons killed. Sounds a bit like Shakespeare, doesn't it? 
That way all of King David's generation would have been terminated and the line of David stopped. How would God then fulfill his covenant with the house of Israel then? Athaliah knew that as a queen she could marry a foreign prince. A foreign prince who was a sincere devotee of Baal and therefore would have made the worship of Baal established permanently in Jerusalem. Out with the God Jehovah and in with the worship of Baal. And as far as we know, she remains the only woman to have reigned as monarch within Israel and Judah and to have sat on the throne of David. Indeed, she wasn't even from the line of David, which probably should have caused much animosity from the religious leaders, if not the devout people. But it seemingly did not, because they were a bunch of cowards. Her mother Jezebel had brought poison from Sidon and had injected it into the life of the nation of Israel. And now Athaliah was planning to inject some of that same venom into the life of Jerusalem and Judah. Not much of a wow factor so far, is there? And when she became queen, Athaliah's every gesture was obeyed immediately. Athaliah was also intent on dragging Judah's tribes into Babylonian exile, as well as establishing the worship of Baal. She was her mother's daughter indeed, was she not? Had Jerusalem not already departed from the service of Almighty Jehovah, the arrival of Athaliah and the threat of Baal priests would have caused uproar, if not a holy and violent reaction by the religious priests. But no such reaction came, and the opposite happened. Jerusalem was succumbing quickly to the temptations and the lure of Baal. The priests were afraid of her, and they did not want to stand up for Jehovah God. And in order to carry out her plans to oversee the supreme reign and establishment of Baal worship, Athaliah exercised her reckless power. She was an ancient Pol Pot. The great temple of Jehovah in Jerusalem was virtually closed. Beautiful Baal temples were built everywhere in Jerusalem at her command. Such innovations changed the whole life of Jerusalem. Worldliness soon prevailed and the last remnant of the fear of the Lord Jehovah seemed to leave the walls of Jerusalem. Picture it, Jerusalem is in a desperate place. Jehovah God, it seemed, their God was silent, it seems. And Athaliah managed to reign for six years, due much to her political savvy, use and abuse of power and her connections. But there was hope at hand. Just a glimmer of hope. A glimpse of hope. What could this hope be and where would it come from? Well, the Lord may have been silent, but he does know better and he stopped her progress in her tracks. Unknown to Athaliah, little Joash had been rescued from the massacre. And when he was seven years old, the high priest Jehoiada finally managed to get some guts, some courage, to publicly crown him as king. And that's where we read from 2 Chronicles chapter 23 and 11 to 15. And upon hearing the noise of Joash's coronation, Athaliah ran into the temple, saw her grandson Joash had been saved, was alive and was appointed king, and she must have been infuriated, yelling, treason, treason. We saw that in our reading, which Jenny so wonderfully did. Athaliah had profaned the temple by her appearance. She was forced out of the temple to be killed, 
course, Jehoiada didn't want to defile the temple by having her blood spilled in it. When she died, there was great rejoicing in the land. 2 Chronicles 23, verse 21. And all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, because Athaliah had been slain with the sword. Athaliah's evil plans were thwarted. Baal would not be established in Judah. Not with her watch anyway. After her death, the temples to Baal were destroyed. And you can read about that also in 2 Chronicles. Interestingly enough, the complementary passage from which the chronicle, chronicler has drawn this event, 2 Kings chapter 11, the 2 Kings 11 account reveals a small group of secret killers who remove Athaliah. Whereas, as we know, the chronicler here makes clear the events in the temple were conducted by all the people of Judah, as well as the celebration of the coronation of Joash. Victory over Athaliah was complete, and a scene of great uh, joy and rejoicing at the instalment of Joash as king. So that is or was Athaliah, our first character tonight, and what a character! She did all she could to remain in power and institute the worship of Baal in Jerusalem and in Judah, including the slaughter of her own sons and grandsons. But she failed dismally in her pursuit of this. As I said earlier, we know that ever since the humanity uh, disobeyed God back in Genesis, that God had a plan and a promise to bring people back into relationship with himself. Often that threat, that promise had been seriously threatened, hadn't it? It was threatened by the fact that Sarah and Abraham remained childless for a long time. It was threatened by the flight of Jacob. It was threatened by the attempts on David's life by Saul. And also, as we have seen, by Athaliah's massacre of Joram's sons and grandsons. However, it cannot be said, as some have suggested, that Athaliah planned that massacre with the deliberate intention or preventing the coming of the promised Messiah from the line of David. No, she was simply after establishing Baal worship to replace worship of Jehovah, the worship of Yahweh. But Satan. Satan, however, that crafty critter, he most certainly would have this purpose in mind when he prompted her to do the deed. And when Athaliah commanded that the king's sons and grandsons be slain, she was merely serving as a tool in the hand of Satan. That's where we now see our hero tonight, Jehoshaphat. Let's look at her for a bit now. Jehoshaphat was a princess, the daughter of King Joram, and her name means Yahweh is an oath. She had married Jehoiada, the high priest, and Jehoshaphat, although she was a king's daughter and a king's sister, married a descendant of Levi, the head of the priest class in Judah. Jehoshaphat is a powerful and wealthy woman amidst all the turmoil and carnage. She's also apparently got a very clear mind. I can imagine some questions going around in her mind. Questions to be answered like, who will come in to rule Judah and return us back to the worship of Yahweh, whom I am named after? Who will defend us from our enemies? Will people... Will people be allowed to worship Jehovah now that Athaliah is in charge? Like all the best heroes, 
Yehoshiba does what she can. She takes one baby, smuggles him away and hides him in the temple. She saves one life. What was the motivation for taking him? Was it because she was aghast at the murder of all the other children? Or was it because she knew the importance of keeping the line of King David going? We don't know, but we do know she saved this one child. The Bible doesn't tell us how she happened to get this Joash, the baby. It seems that the nurse may have helped her. Jehoshaphat was the wife of Jehoiada, and we have for that reason to believe that she feared God. She must have learnt that Joash's nurse had also kept the faith and in those trying times these two women had sought each other's company. This gives Jehoshaphat an occasion to persuade the nurse to flee to the temple with the baby. Athaliah at least didn't detect what had happened. She supposed that the whole of David's family had been killed. As Jehoiada's wife she lived in the temple, not in a palace. The right to search the temple was outside the area of the king or queen even one as evil as Athaliah. For that reason, once she had determined to save the life of the little prince, she decided to hide him in one of the bedrooms in the temple where even Athaliah dare not go. So as our reading told us when Joash was made king six years later, Athaliah expressed her surprise. And Jehoshaphat has a charisma, an appealing character about her, even though we only read about her for a couple of Verses. She seemingly did not desire mundane luxuries, even though Ahaziah was her stepmother, and though the life of splendor at a royal court might have been hers, she chose in preference to that of a secluded life in the temple, the house of Jehovah. Her calm, introspective character had developed in her courage, unequaled by any of the men around her. They were a bunch of wimps, including her husband. They weren't going to stand up to Athaliah, were they? She gave up her personal freedom and liberty, making herself a virtual prisoner in order to protect the baby. Jehoshaphat does what she can. I do wonder, though, if she regretted at not being able to save more children. Maybe I'll ask her one day. And can you imagine the fear going through her mind? What if Joash cried and Athaliah's henchmen and spies heard? Because she would have had spies, Athaliah, would in the temple. How do you stop a baby from crying in such circumstances? In fact, how do you stop a baby crying in any circumstance? I wouldn't know. And if they had been caught, no doubt Athaliah would have been just as merciless even to her stepdaughter, which Jehoshaphat was, and to her grandson, which Joash was. Six years Jehoshaphat told, kept the, the child Joash and his nurse with her in the temple, probably teaching him about Jehovah and not Baal. Isn't that an awful long time to keep a child and prince a secret? A lot of others must have known about it. Temple guards, the priests, the servants, they must have been in on the secret eventually. And they were committed to preserving the godly line of David. Jehoshaphat saved the life of that baby Joash. And by rescuing the life of that little prince, he rescued the hope of Israel and thwarted the plans of Satan. But just as we have no reason to believe that Athaliah consciously tried to interfere with the coming of the Messiah, so we cannot suppose that the effort of Jehoshaphat to save Joash was her conscious attempt to make sure the coming of the Messiah was sure. Athaliah was Satan's tool 
And Yehoshua was used by Yahweh. Athaliah's work was destined to fail because Satan is impotent against God's purposes. And Yehoshua had to succeed because God's plans are invariably realized. It was not Jehoiada, the priest, the male, who tried to save the generations of David from being destroyed. For the sake of his own fear, he would have permitted the whole royal family to be killed. As I said, he's a bit of a wimp, isn't he? Of all the men in Jerusalem at that time still feared the name of Jehovah, not one dared to assert his position. They would have liked to, probably, but they dared not. They lacked bravado and courage. And while all these men, including the high priest, feared to act, Yehoshua did the brave thing. She saw the significance of the situation and acted accordingly. It was a dangerous thing to do, you must agree. If Athaliah had heard about it, she would have tried to kill Yehoshua just like that. But Yehoshua made up her mind, she was determined, and after that she never hesitated. Her courage and readiness seemed to have impressed her husband. So much so that six years later, we see, as we saw earlier, he eventually had the same kind of brave initiative. So her husband may have been the head, but Yehoshua was the neck. Her husband dared to crown Joash king and to execute the judgment of God upon Athaliah. Wow. I knew I'd get one in eventually. So that is these two women, Athaliah and Yehoshua. So what lessons can we learn from the lives of these two women that we can learn and apply almost 3,000 years after the events? Firstly, I think we can remember that God defeats the plans of the wicked. Every era, every era, I'll learn to speak English one day, every era, including our own one, has wicked people who lay their schemes skillfully and with creativity, don't they? just as Athaliah did. However, we also know that such schemes are destined to fail and God will defeat them. Athaliah was so enamoured with power and seemingly imbued with evil that when anything threatened to stop the progress of her wicked plans, she did not hesitate to destroy it. Ultimately, she was stopped by God and not in some small way due to the courage of Yehoshua. As you look around at the world today, are you despairing at what you see? Because I know that some people are. Is there any hope for this world? Is there any hope for me? They ask me. If God is there, why is he so silent? What is God doing about this world as it seems to be getting darker and darker? God, why are you not doing something? Well, the response we have from God was at Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has done something about the evil in this world. Sin and evil and Satan were defeated on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The great God who was outside of time and space entered time and space as a human baby. A baby who himself was threatened by others, just as baby Joash was. And all also had to flee with his family to safety. 
that baby grew up to be? Jesus. The Jesus whose death and resurrection we remembered and celebrated last week. And the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ ensures God's victory over Satan, over sin, and over death. They are conquered, vanquished, squashed. Wow! Satan is a defeated creature, and he will do anything to drag people into defeat with him. The power of sin is conquered, and sin's grip is overcome if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. How easy is it to forget that truth in our life? An old Satan comes up and says, You haven't asked forgiveness for that sin, have you, you naughty boy? Oh, get lost. Go wax your legs. Death has been beaten because those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ will live forever with him. Death is not an end. It is a beginning. We have a God of hope to trust in and to be obedient to. How closely are you following him? Are you like Yehoshaphat and being obedient? Or are you being like the male priests who are hiding and cowering in their corner? Are you gripping onto God with a full hand? Or are you just hanging onto him by your fingertips? One way is safer than the other. Don't, don't panic again, we're almost finished. As I've already said with the story of Athaliah and Jehoshaphat, we can see clearly the work of Satan in the background. He would want to stop God's plan from working. Athaliah's motivation was to see Baal worshipped everywhere, the impotent God that they could put on a shelf. But Satan would have wanted to have halted God's promise from being fulfilled, we can be assured of that. After all, it wasn't the first or last time he'd attempted it. His fingerprints are all over every attempt to stop God's promises being fulfilled. The Easter events, though, show that Satan is a defeated creature because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Satan may not have been able to stop the events of Easter occurring, though he did try, but he does want to drag as much of humanity down with him into the lake of fire as he can. That's our job to stop him with the power of God. Jesus has promised us in the new covenant that he's coming back. 2,000 years we've been waiting. Are you ready? During the time we're waiting for our master to return, we have to be patient while we have a job to do of telling others about him. We have to be brave and courageous, be strong. If Jesus said that he will come again, then guess what? He will come again. His word is true. We must remember that God's faithfulness is always constant. God promised David that his ancestors would always sit upon the throne. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 25. That promise seemed frustrated and doomed to fail when Athaliah plotted to murder all the princes and eliminate every descendant of David. But God's faithfulness was certain. I don't know if you're unsure of God's faithfulness tonight, but let me tell you, his faithfulness is sure. He has a grip on you. An ancient ancestor of David was saved and the bloodline of David continued. This led eventually to the long-awaited time when the Messiah arrived. That's Jesus Christ from the line of David who came to earth, was killed, raised to new life and ascended back to sit at the right hand of God the Father. 
Praise God. Wow. Remember, God is never late. God is always on time. Even if it's not at the time that we want. Sometimes I've protested to him and then been told to behave. We may be unfaithful to God, but God is never unfaithful to us. God always, always, always fulfills his promises. And then lastly, you may be glad to know, this episode teaches me to stand up for God. We shouldn't be afraid even when times are hard. Let's go and be valiant and courageous just as Jehoshaphat was when uh, she hid the baby Joash, who would become one of the reforming kings, despite some disobedience towards Jehovah. In the Western world, it seems that uh, Christians are being ever marginalized by those in authority and power. And the Christian church is also being infiltrated with worldliness instead of holiness. Just a brief look at the news will tell you that. We don't have persecution in this country yet. But many of our Christian family around the world are persecuted because of their belief in Jesus. But I also know this, that where the church is persecuted, it grows exponentially. I was talking to a pastor in Pakistan just this week, and last weekend he baptised 50 people in the river. How many, oh, last time I preached here, when was the last time we had a baptism here? Must be almost 18 months now. So how will you react when you're being marginalised and thought of as, as an irrelevant? when that transforms into persecution. Will you continue to stand up for God as your Hoshiba did, or will you compromise your faith in some way? I would like to think that I would, but I can't say. I would like to think that I would stand up for God under any condition. In this country, we take so much for granted when it comes to our church life. We take for granted that as Christians, we are free to meet at any time without fear or retribution, from anybody. Our church services and prayer meetings really should be full. Our outreach events down the high street of Ringwood should have masses of people willing to share about the Jesus they claim to love. Instead we make excuses for not meeting with other Christians to pray and to learn. We make excuses about not telling others about this Jesus that we claim to love. If you love somebody, don't you want the world to know? So let's go and stand up for God in our workplace, in our homes, and wherever we go. Let's be like Yehoshua and be brave in the face of adversity. Don't be a wimp like her husband. Let's not take for granted the faithfulness of God. Let's not take for granted the, the habit of meeting with each other. God is always faithful to us despite how often we are unfaithful to him. Let's go tonight bearing these three things in mind. Remember that God defeats the plans of the wicked, that there is a hope of the world because of God, and remember to stand courageous for God in the circumstances we face. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that... Uh, once again for your written word and for the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Father, help us with these three things. Help us to be courageous. Help us to stand on your faithfulness. 
And may we go from here, transform people, willing to be these things to others. We ask this through the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit who indwells each one of us and is upon us. Amen.